The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. I invite you to turn with me in your Bible to 2 Kings chapter 2 as we wrap up this series on the prophet Elijah. The Bible has many notable transitions. Think of Moses to Joshua, the wilderness generation to the conquest generation. Think of David, King David to King Solomon, a man of peace followed by a man of war. We can even think of John the Baptist transitioned to Jesus and then Jesus on to his disciples, the man who bore the cross to giving the Great Commission to his followers. In each case, a trailblazer leaves behind a legacy of righteous zeal. And this pattern holds true in our passage as well. As we come to this scene where Elijah is about to depart, leaving behind big shoes to fill. And this passage has some strange details, but I would argue that it's to be taken as a unified whole. We will not be going on to study the life of Elisha, but it is important to consider the legacy left by Elijah as we wrap up this series. And I believe as we look into this text, we will gain insights in how we might honor the Lord in times of transition. Please follow as I read 2 Kings chapter 2. Now when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. And Elijah said to Elisha, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. And the sons of the prophets who were in Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he said, Yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Elisha said to him, Elisha, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. The sons of the prophets who were at Jericho drew near to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he answered, Yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Then Elijah said to him, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. But he said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Fifty men of the sons of the prophets also went and stood some distance from them as they both were standing by the Jordan. Then Elijah took his cloak and rolled it up and struck the water, and the water was parted to the one side and to the other, so the two of them could go over on dry ground. And when they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, Please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. 
And he said, You have asked a hard thing. Yet if you see me as I am being taken away from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. And as he still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elijah saw it and he cried, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. Then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them into two pieces. And he took up the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. Then he took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water, saying, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he had struck the water, the water was parted to the one side and to the other, and Elisha went over. Now when the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho saw him opposite them, they said, The spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed to the ground before him. And they said to him, Behold, now there are with you your servants, fifty strong men. Please let them go and seek your master. It may be that the spirit of the Lord has caught him up and cast him upon some mountain or into some valley. And he said, You shall not send. And when they urged him till he was ashamed, he said, Send. They sent therefore fifty men. And for three days they sought him, but did not find him. And they came back to him while he was staying at Jericho, and he said to them, Did I not say to you, do not go? Now the men of the city said to Elisha, Behold, the situation of this city is pleasant, as my Lord sees, but the water is bad, and the land is unfruitful. He said, Bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. And he went to the spring of water and threw salt in it and said, Thus says the Lord, I have healed this water. From now on, neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. So the water has been healed to this day, according to the word that Elisha spoke. He went up from there to Bethel, and while he was going up on the way, some small boys came out of the city and jeered at him, saying, Go up, you bald head! Go up, you bald head! And he turned around, and when he saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. And two she-bears came out of the woods and tore 42 of the boys. From there he went on to Mount Carmel. And from there he returned to Samaria. This is God's holy and inspired word. Let's pray. Father, I would indeed ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of each of our hearts might be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Just a few weekends ago, my wife and I were in Dallas for the Mission to the World uh, Missions Conference. Mission to the World is the missions agency of our denomination. And while there, we were, had the privilege of visiting with several of our missionary partners, from some of whom we haven't seen in many, many years. And we were reminded how transition is a way of life for missionaries. They leave home, they go to a foreign field, they establish a new home, and after serving for a number of years, they leave home, they go on a home missions assignment, an HMA or a furlough, whether it's for tax reasons or to raise support, to debrief with their uh, support staff, perhaps to rest, although it's not often restful when they're on HMA back in the States, but they're busy and traveling and visiting supporters and 
oftentimes have a restless spirit of wanting to return home, their, their newfound home in the, on foreign shores. Why are we talking with one particular missionary? He was telling me how he and his wife and their young children had been back just a few months on an HMA, and after visiting church after church, had found that it was almost becoming traumatic for their children, that they were going through kind of a a transition overload of having to meet and greet and make new friends, and as their young children were meeting new people at church after church after church, and then having to say goodbye again, and having very small, very small prospects of seeing uh, their new friends again anytime soon, they decided to leave their children at home. For missionary kids especially, designating home can be quite challenging. Missionaries remind us that we are pilgrims on earth. This is not our home. We are only passing through toward to reach our final heavenly destination. All of us are in transition. And transitions are notoriously hard. They test our faith, stretch our commitments, put strain on our relationships. They reveal our core commitments, the things that we cling most tightly to. But of course, Scripture would tell us that we need to anchor into God's Word, into bonds with others, that we would navigate safely through the various transitions of life. A move. A job change, retirement, the death of a loved one, or perhaps losing a beloved leader, as we find here in our text. I want to divide our text between three organized parts, the preparation for transition, the transition itself, and then the fruit of transition. But as we look at these three parts, we find an application as we observe the the inherent awkwardness of transition. And yet God's power in transition, then of course the challenge of transition, the challenge to faithfully follow Jesus Christ. Through the various transitions that he leads us through, and may we in his likeness learn to pass on a legacy of righteous zeal. One verse one, the the editor is reflecting upon the crisis that took place in Israel as it was facing the looming departure of its beloved prophet Elijah, to to lose the great Elijah, the one of mysterious origins, the one who stood up to Ahab and Jezebel, the horde of the prophets of Baal. The people are no doubt asking, how shall we go on? Without the great Elijah, when a patriarch passes away, a great father, a pastor, a president or a leader of some kind, people are unsettled. They feel like the foundations are being shaken. Will God still be with us? Who will advocate for us in these evil days? Yet we see the faithfulness of the Lord God raising up a successor to Elijah in the prophet Elisha, who had only been mentioned once in 1 Kings 19. Well, the manner of Elijah's departure gives testimony to God's pleasure with his faithful servant. He receives an escort of chariots of fire, of heavenly horses. You recall that God had buried Moses' body personally. And here, Elijah receives the honor 
of not tasting the sting of death. The second man that we know of, perhaps after Enoch, the sixth from Adam and the great-great-grandfather of Noah, who also walked with God. Here is a man who is honored by the living God, and we see him honored again when Moses and Elijah alone appear at the transfiguration of the Lord Jesus himself. But the awkwardness of this transition begins to unfold in verses 2 through 8 as we see three rounds of interaction between Elijah and Elisha and the company of prophets. And I believe it's important to note the geography of this passage. The prophets leave from Gilgal, go to Bethel, Jericho, and the Jordan, and the two prophets journey on together to the river before Elisha returns alone the same path backwards, unifying the whole passage as a whole. And Elijah, on each occasion, tells Elisha to stay as he heeds the Lord's call to go to a new place, first to Bethel and then to Jericho and then finally to Jordan. But in each case, Elisha does not comply. Now, we don't know whether Elijah is trying to spare his his successor, or perhaps test him, but Elisha proves true nonetheless. Elisha refuses to part with his master, even making an oath as the Lord lives that he will not depart from him. Now, word is out that Elisha will be departing soon, and a guild of prophets, the sons of the prophets, the seminarians in training come out to forewarn Elisha of what is about to take place. And you sense the tension in the language as Elisha responds to this guild of prophets. Yes, I know. Keep quiet. In other words, don't speak of it. It is too awkward. It is too painful to discuss publicly. We've been in situations where we just don't know what to say when someone experiences a great loss, when someone is about to depart from us, we find ourselves without words. And Elisha will have to endure several rounds of this awkward tension, anticipating the departure of his master. Transitions are awkward and oftentimes painful. While at the Mission to the World conference, we met with one set of missionaries who have been on home assignment at the headquarter office of MTW down in Georgia for most of the year. It turns out that our missions agency has been going through a very painful transition for the last two or three years as it said goodbye to its former coordinator, Paul Koyster, and welcomed its new coordinator, Lloyd Kim, just a few years ago. As an organization, they needed to make some changes. They needed to implement a new system software package that did not go so well and failed to meet the requirements of the organization. They made forecasts predicting that several missionaries would have to retire and leave the field, and so they had to make cutbacks on internal staff. Well, their communication plan did not go as planned, and fear, anxiety settled into the culture of the organization leading to low morale and to several people quitting prematurely. And of course, in such an environment, there's, there's, there's anger, there's confusion, there's great conflict. And so for the last several months, one of our key missionaries has been counseling and praying with the organization to help them work through 
a very painful transition. Thankfully, they're turning the corner in the right direction. Transitions can't be avoided, but they can be planned, and they can, we can follow the Lord faithfully through them. I recall vividly our own Dr. Rogers and our own transition planning as a leadership and vision committee in recent years. Just the, the awkwardness of having to talk about hard things, about anticipating a time without a beloved pastor. Fellow, pa- fellow churches are going through this, similar things. Wheatland with Bruce Mawinney, uh, Hope Church at Shippensburg with David Fadati, who now is facing a, a bleak future of the mind, suffering from Louis body dementia. A church going through a transition is a hard and painful thing. The transitions, whether it's your church, your organization, your workplace, your home, transitions force us to take inventory. They force us to ask, are we leaving behind the legacy that we intended? Transitions may fill us with anxiety and dread, not able to let go. It might reveal that our confidence is, found, is misplaced. Perhaps you're suffering from anxiety over a dreaded transition or going through a very painful one in work, at home, in, in your station in life, perhaps by choice, perhaps by something that has been forced upon you. Someone my age faces the notoriously ch- challenging uh, burden of talking with aging parents about their future and their finances and where they plan to live. My wife and I s- approached both sets of our parents just a few years ago to talk about these things, and they both sets of parents very graciously opened up to talk about their finances and their future plans. It's helpful to know where the gold's buried, which mattresses to rip open. But planning for the future can be an awkward and painful thing. So how, how do you prepare? How do you get through the various transitions you will inevitably face in life? Well, notice in our text, the repeated references to the Lord. Verse 1 opens, indicating very firmly that the Lord himself will take Elijah. His departure will be no surprise to God. The Lord takes his servants at his own disposition— Elijah references the Lord three times. That is the Lord himself who directs his steps. Elisha, in kind, responds, making an oath in the Lord's name, binding himself to his predecessor as he prepares for his departure. Even the company of prophets who come alongside them confirm that the Lord is leading in this transition. We are reminded by this text the trust not in leaders, succession plans, retirement accounts, insurance policies, search committees, well-vetted successors, as important as all these things are. In transition, we trust in the Lord. To keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, as we walk with him through the various transitions of our lives. Well, secondly, we see the power of God manifest in this transition. Evidently, in verse 8, as Elijah takes off his cloak and strikes 
the water of the Jordan to cross by on dry ground, an obvious allusion to the time of Moses and Joshua. A reminder that the power of God is not limited to any era. And it's here that Elijah entreats his successor Elisha to ask one last request. And Elisha does not waste the opportunity. He takes full advantage. He asks for a double portion of Elijah's spirit. Now, what exactly was Elijah asking? It could be that he was referring to the the double inheritance that a, a firstborn son would receive from a father. We know nothing of Elijah's legacy in terms of children, whether he had children or not. And Elisha, his spiritual son, will receive a double inheritance sorts in his prophetic calling. But it seems that he's asking for something more, a, a, a double expression of power and manifestation of God's blessing upon his ministry. Elisha is seeking ministry impact. He is seeking and calling for the responsibility to bear witness to the majesty of of God in his life and ministry. And as he, you look through the pages, we see a manifestation of miracles in Elisha's work that surpasses that of Elijah's. Elijah confirms that Elisha has asked a hard thing. But notice that Elijah does not begrudge Elisha's request. He is not envious that greater things might happen under the service of his successor. Neither was Moses envious of those whom the Spirit of God would fall upon. Neither would Jesus, who told his own disciples that they would see even greater things through their ministry after he had departed. Only this condition does Elijah give to his servant, that he will see these things only if he is faithful to the end. Well, in a great manifestation of God's power, he takes his servant with a manifestation of chariots and fire, the horses of heaven, the God of the whirlwind, the God of power and majesty, takes his servant from the earth. It's quite the exit. Who would not want to depart from earth in such a fashion? But in the very next line, we see that Elisha honors his predecessor crying out, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. This seems to be a kind of expression of mourning and loss. He seems to be saying that Elijah, to have Elijah was to have the army of God. That Elijah was worth troop divisions. But now Israel's defense system was gone. Israel is exposed and vulnerable to her enemies. This phrase will only be repeated once by King Joash at the time when Elisha would come to die. And in such a situation, where do God's people turn? They turn to the Lord, the one who reveals his power and flame and fury. Elisha rightly mourns, tearing his robes, takes up Elisha's cloak, approaches the Jordan and asks this important question, where is the Lord, the God of Elijah. Is he still present? Will his power still be available to his servants? And as he strikes the water with faith, it parts and he crosses on dry ground. Once again, an allusion to Joshua succeeding 
God's servant Moses. This God who overthrew the tyrants of Egypt. The kingdoms of the earth are still present. God's power is not limited to any era or any person. The God who crushed the Egyptian hordes is still on his throne and at work on the earth this very day. God's power is not limited to the first century, to the 18th century revivals, to the 19th century revivals. God is as powerful and as committed to advancing his kingdom on earth today as he has ever been. Transition after transition, human leader after human leader. For as long as the Lord will tarry and the Father determines the time is right, to send his son to redeem and gather his elect and to judge the world in righteousness. So let us not resign ourselves with nostalgia to miss the good old days when God was at work perhaps through the crusades of Billy Graham or other manifestations of God's work in our society. Graham will be gone soon. And God will raise up other evangelists. God will raise up other preachers. God will raise up more churches. God will raise up the workers he has called to spread his fame and his glory across this great land and around the world. God's leaders change. God's power persists. And yes, God sometimes removes his more illustrious servants so that we might not make idols of them, as if they were the only conduits of God's help. God sometimes chooses to display his might through lesser instruments so that people will be less transfixed by the wonders of his servants and more consumed with God's mighty power to save. So what happens after transition? Well, Joshua and Solomon both enjoyed a season of success and peace and prosperity. And likewise, Elisha enjoys success and acceptance of some form, but also transitions challenges. We see the fruit of this transition when the prophets who had observed these things from across the Jordan, they see Elisha miraculously coming back across the dry ground. And those of the prophets embrace him. They accept him. They bow down before him. They affirm, affirm that they are his servants. And yet they stumble. The prophets want to go looking for Elisha, driven by wishful thinking that perhaps the Lord has merely cast him on some mountain or valley. These are the prophets who had affirmed that the Lord would take away Elijah, but now they are clinging to him. They will not let go. It's a problem in transition. People live in the past with nostalgia. They fear change. They struggle to trust God for what lies ahead, perhaps with a kind of incomplete acceptance of the new order. And so these prophets go on a fruitless three-day venture looking for their former master, only to come up empty. So what are some signs of a successful transition? Well, one is acceptance. A people committed to a vision and not just a person, that any church or organization or ministry or nation that enjoys growth or health and stability during transition. 
A successful transition means embracing change that is consistent with, with the core values of the organization. Change is inevitable during transition. There is good change and there is bad change, but there is no such thing as no change. As Elisha approaches Jericho, we see that he is accepted by the men of the city. And they come to him with a problem. They have water that has tainted this, causing death and miscarriage. And our translation of verse 19 is probably less than clear as it refers to the, the unfruitful land that's due to the water problem. But, but literally, it means barren, as in the water yields miscarriages. Elijah takes, Elisha takes action, calling for a bowl and salt, and with a great act, with an outward sign, heals the water so that there will be no more death and miscarriage. Now, this may seem like a strange and out-of-place encounter. How does this fit with the narrative? Well, I remind you of the place. This is Jericho. This is the place that Joshua cursed long, long ago. Now, there was a prophecy during the conquest that any man who rebuilt the city of Jericho would suffer the loss of his firstborn and the loss of his youngest. And, of course, that happened in 1 Kings 16 when a man named Hiel, under the evil reign of Ahab, rebuilt the city of Jericho at the cost of his firstborn and his youngest son in fulfillment of Joshua's prophecy. Well, apparently that curse was still at work. And the people under the burden of this curse sought relief, seeking the Lord's prophet by faith. And the Lord in this instance was gracious to heal their land and its water. The power of God was manifest in Elisha to heal this land. We worship a God who heals. We live in a land that is cursed with broken marriages, dysfunctional families, weak, corrupt political leaders, low-performing schools, drug abuse and addiction, human trafficking, indebtedness. Our own congregation is cursed with regrets from the past. And I ask you, what clouds of grief and shame still hover over you? I exhort you in the strong name of Jesus Christ to be released from your curse. By the power of the risen Christ, return to Jericho and drink the water that is healed. Well, one final bizarre encounter in our passage involving small boys, a cursing prophet, and ferocious mama bears. What does this have to do with this passage? Is this some evidence of sick Israelite humor? Or is this the manifest judgment of God? It reminds you of the place. It's important. The place is Bethel. This is the home of the northern tribe's rebellion, where Jeroboam, who rebelled against Solomon's son Rehoboam, and established bull-calf worship at Bethel as a rival to the rightful worship of God at Jerusalem. For 80 years, Bethel had been the leader of rebellion and pagan worship against the Lord their God. And notice from our text that Elisha did not go through Bethel. He went around it. He was going past it, minding his own business. And yet the boys of the town come out to him to taunt him, 
And most scholars think that these are not little five, six, seven-year-old boys, more likely 10 to 12-year-old preteen boys. And there was not a few of them, as 42 of them are mauled by the mother bears. That was an intimidating mob to the prophet. These boys are haters of God's word. No doubt reflecting the attitude of their parents and the elders of the city. They call Elijah, you old bald head. A term of contempt and disrespect. They tell him to go on up, whether referring to Elisha going up to heaven or rather merely go on up the road. Get out of town. We do not want to hear your words of prophecy in this city. Elisha had not stopped to make trouble, but they had made trouble for him. And so with righteous zeal, he stands his ground. And he calls down a curse from heaven, and the Lord responds, sending wild animals to maul these young boys. Elisha blessed the repentant men of Jericho, but he cursed the reviling youth of Bethel. And this great act of judgment fulfills the prophecy of Moses in Leviticus 26 where God says to his covenant people, I will let loose the wild beast among you, which will shall rob you of your children. The curse for disobedience and unbelief. So Elisha receives a double portion of his master. Elijah retraces Elisha's steps and performs his mighty works. Elisha is Yahweh's successor endowed with power and wisdom to speak the word of God's grace and God's judgment. And we're reminded here that God's word brings healing or harm. It brings deliverance or disaster. And the legacy of righteous zeal offers in faithful preaching grace and judgment. Truth and righteousness, the hope of heaven and the reality of eternal hell. To neglect such a charge is to fail to be zealous for God's righteousness. God's work on earth is not limited to any one man's ministry. The true measure of leadership of how well a man performs is is how well does the organization continue on without him. And so we see in Elisha the man carrying on the legacy of Elijah, a legacy of righteous zeal for the Lord's honor as we see the investment of Elijah in his successor. And we see that likeness in our own Lord Jesus Christ, the one who invested himself in his closest disciples, who spent time and hour, hour with him in those waning days and hours before his departure. In the case of our Lord Jesus Christ, his departure was not a surprise. It did not catch God off guard but in fulfillment of all righteousness. After Christ has satisfied the requirements of the law, he laid down his life as a sacrifice to fulfill all righteousness on behalf of his people. And the Lord Jesus was not met with an escort of chariots of fire or celestial horses. He was not taken from the earth in a great whirlwind. Rather, he bore the burden of, of the cross. 
he suffered a sinner's death in humiliation. And yet his is the greatest legacy of righteousness. The one who was zealous for God that far surpassed Elijah or Moses or David or any other great hero of our faith. We see in the Lord Jesus a legacy of one who came seeking and saving the lost, who came to heal the sick, to raise the dead, to defend the weak, the one who came to show mercy and compassion, the one who did not retaliate against his accusers and attackers. We see the righteous legacy of our Lord who left his followers a firm foundation upon which to stand, equipping his disciples for the great task and promising to give the Holy Spirit that they might perform even greater things after his departure. The Lord Jesus' legacy continues this day. As the church continues to spread the fame of our great God all throughout the earth, in 1900, one in 21 persons on earth was a professing believer in Jesus Christ. By the year 2000, that ratio had narrowed to one in seven people on the earth, professing saving knowledge in the Lord Jesus Christ. Sadly, Europe, the heartbed of Christendom at one time and the, the fatherland of the Protestant Reformation, sadly, Europe now has the lowest percentage of evangelical believers of any continent on earth as we see the gospel spreading throughout South America, Asia, Africa, and thankfully is still a glowing ember of hope here in our own continent. The Lord Jesus' legacy continues as he spreads the fame of his own name through his servants who are willing to serve and follow his legacy of righteous zeal. While we were at the Mission to the World conference a few weeks ago, we were given MTW's 1% challenge. The challenge to every PCA congregation to send out cross-cultural missionaries. 1% of the congregation, for us, that would be 12 people over the next 10 years. And we might send to testify to the greatness of our awesome God. We have a head start for next year with three we've already approved. Elizabeth Marsh, Jeb and Gail Bland, and we're looking for others who we might commission, who we might support, who we might partner with to help make the name and fame of Jesus Christ great on the earth. Pray. Pray that God would raise up his laborers with boldness, with the vision of Elisha to testify to the greatness of the Lord our God and serve faithfully the lifetime of righteous seal. Let's pray. We thank you, O Lord our God, for giving us a legacy of righteousness. As we hope not in our own righteousness, but in the one you secured for us, we stand before a holy God, who indeed is righteous and true. We pray that you might go with us and lead us and help us to live as lights and for a dark world. We pray for your strength, your peace, your hope, and your guidance. So we commit all these things to you in the precious name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.